This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, What to Practice, recorded June 13th, 2004, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, this morning, uh, I'm going to discuss a question left in the question box by Vip, and this is the question. The Center offers so many resources to assuage the appetite of the voracious seeker, like moi. Yet sometimes it feels like I'm swimming in such a soup of so many possible flavors. This could cause a case of spiritual indigestion. Specifically, I find myself drawn to two practice approaches, Tibetan Tantra and the self-inquiry of Advaita. Both methods make crystal clear sense to me and seem to present the way home. But there is a constant impulse to mix and match these two. For example, in our practitioners group, we are supposed to be watching emotions and by unattached viewing see that the negative or uncomfortably strong emotions are the same as enlightenment qualities, simply energy. In this pure seeing, the emotion will self-liberate, pop like a bubble, and we find it's just impersonal energy. During the prescribed meditation, I experienced the impulse to inject an inquiry. I ask, who is it who is feeling this emotion? So the raw experience of feeling starts to get herded by a thought. Tantra starts to get muddled with inquiry. Is this a problem? If so, may I hear a solution? Well, before we uh, get to this particular problem that Vip is having, I thought I'd take this opportunity, as I often do, to expand the topic here and give a little background and describe what this soup of practices is and how we might get some grip of understanding it, categorizing it, and so forth. So it's not just a big mishmash out there. And the first thing we have to do is ask, what do practices do? Why do we practice in the first place? What are they designed to do? And there is actually a big mistake that many seekers make. They think practices bring about enlightenment. It is not true. Practices do not bring about enlightenment. Nothing brings about enlightenment. In one sense, from the point of view of the absolute, enlightenment is already there. What practices do is they remove obstacles. They're a little bit like medicine you take for a disease. You take the medicine as long as you have the disease. The medicine is designed to get rid of the disease. It doesn't actually make you healthy. When the disease is removed, that is health. That is the definition of health. Health isn't some special state. It's the absence of disease. So these practices are just that. They remove the obstacles. And, of course, the big obstacle, according to all mystical traditions, very important, the obstacle, the main obstacle, is this delusion that we all have that we are separate little entities or selves. That we go about in the world of other separate entities and selves, and we bang into each other, and we bang into items and rocks and stuff like that, and then we die. 
<laughs> That's what terrifies us. This is the root of all our suffering. And what mystics say, it isn't true. There is no self there. So that is the big obstacle. So these practices work to remove that obstacle, the sense of self, of being a self. And when that is completely removed, there is a space, a state of emptiness, silence, stillness. Technically, I call it kenosis. It's a Greek word that means to be self-emptied. So we are trying to clear away all the stuff that we think of as self and then that emptiness, that silence, that stillness is our true nature. That is the, the limitless, endless space of consciousness itself. In other traditions, they call it God, Brahman, the Tao, Buddha nature. It doesn't matter. Whatever you call it. It's beyond words. We just use words here as pointers. That is our true nature. Then... If we recognize that, that is enlightenment. You can be in that space of silence, stillness, emptiness, and whatever, and not recognize it's your true nature. And so you miss the opportunity, so to speak. In fact, everybody, uh, every night, unless you stayed up all night, is in that space in dreamless sleep. There you are. There's nothing but consciousness, pure consciousness but we're not lucid. That's why there's no opportunity to recognize it. And there are other opportunities, other ways that manifest. But that is the purpose of these practices, to remove this delusion of self. Here's what the Tibetan master Longchenpa says. As the sun and moon uncovered by clouds, when the nature is freed from obstructions, it is called enlightenment. This is a very common analogy. It's like the sun covered by clouds. You can't see the sun like today. The clouds disappear. Wow, there's the sun. So the sun's always there. It's just obscured by the clouds. And the Sufis speak of veils between ourselves and God, ourselves and reality. Al-Haq, the, the God and reality are identical in Sufism. Here's what Hafiz, a great Sufi poet, says. Between lover and beloved, there is no veil. Hafiz, thou thyself art thy own veil. Arise from this between. So we are the veil of God, this sense of being a limited self, because God is limitless. Here's Catherine of Genoa, Christian mystic of the Middle Ages. Once stripped of all its imperfections, the soul rests in God with no characteristics of its own since its purification is the stripping away of the lower self in us. Our being is then God. So it's the same idea here. It's a purification, stripping away of these obstacles. Now, it's very important to remember that the self is not a thing, an entity. You know, when I was... Uh, down in L.A., when I started on my path, I'd go to all these workshops and everybody was trying to dissolve their egos, like the ego was a, a wart on their nose, see, and so they're trying to dissolve it. The self is not any wart on your nose. The self is the one who wants to dissolve it. And that is not a thing. It is an activity. It is an activity 
a thought, an emotion, basically, combining to form patterns of conditioned perception and behavior. A very good analogy of this is it's like a hurricane. And if we think of thought as clouds and emotion as wind, the way the hurricane works is the wind grabs these clouds and swirls them around. So you have all these cloud formations all turned into this one swirling mass of turmoil. And in the center of that, there's this eye, very defined. If you've ever seen satellite photos of some of these hurricanes, it looks like there's something there. But the eye is just sky. It's just space. It's nothing is in there. But the hurricane keeps swirling these winds and, and uh, clouds around and around and around. And it's this conditioned pattern. It'll stay that way until something happens. It falls apart. There are infinite variety of other things wind and clouds could be doing. But no, it's all trapped in this turmoil. That's very much like our condition of delusion. It just rolls along. We don't pay any attention to it. We don't even realize it most of the time. Practices, then, are designed to interrupt this conditioned behavior. So that's really what practices do. They interrupt this. When this is interrupted, then there's the opportunity for flashes of the wisdom and love inherent in our true nature to shine through. A little bit here, a little bit there, maybe. And the hurricane starts to lose its force, you know. It's still there, but it's no longer got that oomph. And eventually, it disappears completely. And when it disappears completely, what happens to the eye? When the winds and the clouds all dissipate, it's gone. Because it wasn't really there, it's just the space. The space is always there. But we have to remember one very important thing. Our true nature, the true nature of everybody, is identical. Our true nature is all consciousness. Consciousness does not in itself have any particular attributes, color, weight. There's nothing that would distinguish one consciousness from another. Each hurricane thinks it's got its own little unique eye, but each of those eyes is the same identical space. In that sense, we are all the same. In our delusion, however, we are all unique. Because no two hurricanes are exactly alike. So it's like, uh, I don't know, there are 30 people in this room, we've got 30 little hurricanes going. And each hurricane looks a little different. If you're a hurricane expert, you know, you'd say, oh, that's Charlie and that's Suzanne and, you know, you know the difference. So each one is different. So the practices we have to apply are a little different in each case. Here's what Zen master Hakuin says. Buddhas work in the manner of a skilled physician. A physician does not set out to examine his patients with a single fixed medical prescription already in mind. Since the ailments from which they suffer vary greatly, he must be able to prescribe a wide variety of remedies. So yes, there are lots and lots of practices. Not all the practices are for everybody by any means. It's a good thing too, because you couldn't master all the practices that are out there that are available, at least in one lifetime. Then 
it's also important to realize that there are enough similarities in the dynamics of how this delusion is created. Even though they're very unique, they have enough shared components that we can make a classification of the remedies. So we have different kinds of remedies, just like we have different kinds of medicine. We have a whole category of antibiotics that work with infections, let's say. And then within those, there are variations, different antibiotics. So it's convenient to divide up the main practices on the menu. You might call these the entrees. <laughs> into four kinds, four entrees on this menu. The first one are practices of morality. And they are designed to interrupt self-centered patterns of behavior, outer behavior, particularly in relation to other people. So to give just one example, almost all traditions have some precept against stealing. At the center, our precept is integrity, we call it, and it's not to take what does not belong to me. So if you take that precept and you take it seriously and you work with it, you take it as a tool to interrupt behavior, not as uh, something to imitate and then fail and say, oh, I'm no good, I'm a sinner, but something you actually work with, then it's very interesting what happens. That, first of all, brings the light of awareness to what you're actually doing throughout your day. So you might start with the very crudest thing. Don't take what doesn't belong to me. Don't take material things. So you might be at the checkout counter, you know, at the Safeway, and you have an item that costs, I don't know, $9.99, and you give the uh, cashier a $10 bill, and the cashier mistakes and thinks you gave them a 20 and they give you $10 and a penny back. And maybe you're the kind of person, which, by the way, I was very definitely at one point, was, ooh, goody, these corporations rip me off all the time. I'm getting some back here. But no, if you've taken this precept, you say, no, wait a minute, whoa, 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 no. Now, the precept might not kick in until after you left the place. Do you know what I mean? It might not even kick in until after you got home. Then you can think about, are you going to get in your car and take the $10 back? What are you going to do about it? See, it, it's unfolding. It's, it, it presents you with all these opportunities to change your behavior, even if it doesn't kick in at the moment that you actually did it. But that's not the only way this precept works. You don't take credit for something you didn't do. So maybe at work something happened and the boss thinks that you were the one responsible and you just, you know, sort of let the boss think that because you're going to get a promotion down the line or something. How about not taking someone's good name through malicious gossip? Interesting one, right? So these precepts actually reveal how our minds work and how there's always this self-centeredness. What's good for me? What's not good for me? We look at the whole world through this very narrow dualistic vision, I and others. Practices of inquiry interrupt our conditioned ways of thought, not by substituting a new way of thinking, but by getting us to examine our fundamental assumptions about reality, like who we are. And we can use inquiry to look at our own direct, naked experience and see if our assumptions about who we are are true. So this becomes self-inquiry at that point, which Vitt was talking about. And self-inquiry actually begins farther back than where Vitt picked it up. So it's saying, well, 
Who do I think I am? Well, I think I'm a body. I think I'm emotions. I think I'm thoughts. And then I can just watch. Am I this body? What is this body? What's really going on here? Well, there are a lot of sensations. They all come and go. Am I any of those sensations? Am I coming and going? No. Am I my emotions? They come and go, you know. In the morning, I'm mad at someone. By the afternoon, I'm happy again, you know. At night, I find out my cat died. I'm sad. I mean, it's round and round and round. So which emotion am I if I'm my emotions? They're all coming and going. Same with thoughts, etc., etc. We convince ourselves to our own experience. So this is how inquiry works, particularly self-inquiry. Meditation practices. They interrupt our conditioned modes of perception. This is a very fundamental level. When we meditate, the first thing we have to do is to learn to concentrate, to learn to free our attention from the thought so it's not so confused with the thought. And then we go through a progression, usually in a normal meditation practice. You use a meditation called choiceless awareness to discriminate between what you think and what your experience is very directly. So out there, there's a tree. So I look at that. That's a Doug fir tree. Well, really, is that a thought that I have? And can I actually, through meditation, experience how there's something in the visual field and then there's a thought that says, that's a Doug fir. And then the thought fades away. But what's in the visual field is still there. It's not a Doug fir. It doesn't come labeled Doug fir. That's something I'm slapping on it. And I don't know that. This is why we get confused. And we do this all the time and with everything in our environment. So through a practice like choiceless awareness, we can begin to free ourselves from that delusion. It's not that we don't want to be able to identify one tree from another, but we realize it's... Something we're doing, the thought that's doing it, it's not inherent in the trees. Uh, liberating thoughts. This is a practice of allowing thoughts themselves to arise and pass and watching how that works. So you're actually now taking thought itself as the object of meditation rather than taking something other than thought and trying to free yourself from thought. Once you have some detachment from thought, you turn back and look at thought itself. And it's amazing. I mean, how powerful these things are and what are they? They're nothing. I mean, I can think, oh, gee, what a beautiful room this is. Or I can think, oh, it's kind of bare and cold. It doesn't affect the room at all. Those thoughts just, they're nothing. I continue on, liberating emotions. This again was what Vip mentioned. I watch emotions and by divorcing the energy of the emotion from my thought about it, being able to experience the energy nakedly, I see that they are what the Tibetans call wisdom energies, actually. That they are energies that can be used in the service of love and compassion. Even things like anger. Even things like jealousy, even what we think of as negative emotions. So we're not trying to get rid of any sort of emotion whatsoever. We're just trying to see its true nature. Just to give you some idea of what this is uh, all about, if you've ever been in a crisis, a car accident, uh, a war, or some sort of disaster, and you're terrified, and suddenly uh, this grace kicks in, and your mind clears up, and you know just what you need to do, 
and there's no extraneous thought, there's nothing distracting you, and it feels like somebody else has taken over. Has anybody had that experience? Okay. So that will not happen unless you have that fear. The fear is the energy that's allowing that to happen. Finally, in meditation practice, and I'm just giving you brush strokes, touching on highlights here, we end up with awareness of awareness, where we can watch any phenomena, thoughts or anything else, we watch how it arises and disappears, and where it goes is just this space of awareness, this consciousness. This is always there. And so the attention shifts, like a gestalt shift. Instead of paying attention to the phenomena, we're paying now attention to the consciousness itself, just the awareness. Then there are practices of devotion, and they purify our hearts of self-centered desires and aversions. And they work through uh, cultivating a sense of devotion to some form of the divine. They don't work for everybody, because if you have no sense of the divine, if that doesn't mean anything to you, if you've never had an experience of that, you really can't will yourself to start a practice of devotion. It doesn't mean you can't start on a mystical path. You certainly can. You just won't be able to start here. But through a practice of devotion, like prayer in a heart, we concentrate attention on the beloved and take it off ourselves. And then through serving the beloved, we change our motivation. Instead of looking at life as, how can I get what I need and avoid what I don't want? How can I serve the beloved? How can I serve the divine? How can I serve God? And finally, by surrendering our will to the divine will, we interrupt this delusion that we have a self-will to begin with. So again, we're interrupting these conditioned patterns of behavior. Uh, Then there are a whole bunch of supplemental practices. Fasting, chanting, bowing, retreats, sending and taking. It's a practice cultivating compassion. Practices of the night, death practices. That's just a few of them. Then there are a bunch of practices that are unique to a particular tradition. Like for Christians, communion, the ritual, holy communion. Sufis, uh, some orders of Sufis do these Sufi dancing, this whirling dance. Tibetans do a practice called deity yoga, which is rather unique. It's identifying with different divine aspects of yourself. Uh, Hindus have a practice of kundalini, manipulating the subtle energies of the body. And then I mentioned earlier the Zen koans, these strange little paradoxical riddles that are taken as a practice. So there are all these various kinds of practices. Aside from what's on the main menu, the entrees, these you could... Think of it as, you know, second courses, desserts, uh, salads, soups, and all that. Then, we can think of practices in terms of being formal or informal. Most seekers require some period of formal training for almost any practice. It's a little bit like learning to drive. If you want to learn to drive, most people go out and they get a driving instructor and take, I don't know, 10 hours of driving lessons. And after a while, you don't need the formal practice, the driving lessons, you know how to drive. And so it becomes second nature for you to drive. A lot of practices work that way. For instance, in meditation or prayer in the heart. 
you almost always have to begin with set times and places where you can minimize the distractions in your environment because all this stuff going off in the environment keeps us engaged in all that mental chatter and all those dramas and stories. So if you go into your, uh, I don't know, your library or wherever you have some little place in a garden and you sit quietly, you know, and you don't answer the phones and you don't look at the mail and you don't watch TV and all that, you eliminate all those distractions and then you can start to practice just what we did this morning, paying attention to some object, Tension's carried away, brings it back. And after a while, you know, you become freer and freer. And that will lead to a kind of mindfulness in your everyday life, which will be informal. You don't have to stop and practice. Some practices are designed to deal with a particular aspect of your own delusion. For instance, ascending and taking and liberating emotions. These are things that you would want to practice for a while formally, maybe several months, and then they're available to you when you find yourself caught up in a situation where they apply. So just to use the example of sending and taking. In sending and taking, as a formal practice, you envision suffering of other people, friends, strangers, even your enemies, and you take that on yourself and you send them love, happiness, and so forth. And you do this as an imaginative practice for a while. So you get used to it. Sometimes it's uh, coordinated with a breath. So you can do the taking on the in-breath and the sending on the out-breath and so forth. And once you've done that, once you've really trained in that, this can be useful for you wherever you find yourself. In some situation where, you know, you see um, an accident on the highway. And already the medics are there, so there's nothing for you to do physically, like call 911 or something. But what can you do? Well, you can do a little sending and taking right on the spot for that person who's injured. And it'll be second nature to you to do that. In practices like that, it doesn't hurt to have a refresher course every once in a while. So even if you've done it once three or four years ago, it's a good idea to go on retreat, practice it in a formal setting again, and that gives you a reminder of what to do in those situations. Then some practices you're going to want to do for the duration of your path for two reasons, and maybe it's the same practice, but there are two reasons. One is most of us need some daily reminders that we are on a path. It's very easy to have that slip away if you're not doing any kind of practice. So this is why every traditional culture has all sorts of things going on to remind us In Christian countries, they have church bells going off. In Muslim countries, they have the call to prayer. In Hindu countries, there are rites and rituals that punctuate the day. When you get up in the morning, you do sacrifice or whatever. All these things to remind us, to remind us, so we don't get so totally caught up in our immediate lives that we lose track of what it's really all about. And then there are some practices, and each person will find that in their own experience, that really keep pointing us directly back to that kenosis, that emptiness, that stillness, that silence. So advanced practices of prayer of silence do that. Uh, Awareness of awareness does that. So we keep using that to keep us aimed back towards this stillness. So that's briefly an overview of what this soup of practices is about. You can think of these four main kinds of practices, morality, inquiry, meditation, devotion, 
And then there's a host of supplemental kinds of practices that you can use in particular situations or particular periods of your path or life or whatever. So then the big question is, how do you know what practice is right for you? And I must say, in the past, this was usually determined by the tradition and or your teacher. So you would, almost in any culture before the 20th century, you show up and your teacher gives you the practice and you don't question it. We are moderns, are a little bit more independent-minded. That has its advantages, it also has its disadvantages. We're so confused now. What should we do? Is it right? Is this going to be okay? You know, so forth and so on. But still, I think we can establish some guidelines, at least make some suggestions. And since we are assuming that we are independent-minded Westerners, then you have to take more responsibility in this now. And the first thing you should ask yourself is, why are you on the spiritual path? What is it that you're looking for? And this formally breaks down usually into one of two motivations. And to use the Sanskrit technical terms for it, the path of janana and the path of bhakti. Janana is related to knowledge, but not intellectual knowledge. It's the fundamental knowledge. And bhakti is devotion and love. And so most people are on a path because they're looking for one of two things. You have a burning desire to know the truth about who you are, what this is all about then you're, by definition, a janani. If you have a longing for love, not just a temporary love that you can get through other beings, which is all a reflection of divine love, but an ultimate eternal love, then you are a bhakti. And, uh, by the way, these can switch. You might start as a janani on a path, and you start having experiences of the divine. You didn't believe in nothing when you started the path. And then you start experiencing, now it's not a question of belief, faith, or anything. Okay, well, now you can start doing devotional practices. And very often, the other thing happens, too, that people start with a belief in their beloved and, you know, devotion and all that, and then they want to know, who is this beloved? What is the reality of God? And since, ultimately, God and you are the same, to ask, who am I, to ask, who is God, is asking the same question. Love and truth are also intrinsically related as aspects of our fundamental nature. Because the truth that all the mystics testify to is there is no self. So selflessness is the truth. And then true love is selfless. So really, when we practice love, we're simply practicing truth in action. So they're really identical from a mystical point of view. If you are a janana, chances are your main practice is going to be inquiry supported by meditation and morality. If you're a bhakti, your main practice is going to be devotion supported by meditation and morality. Then you want to look at what aspects of yourself are the strongest, the most prominent. How we distinguish people. We say, oh, that person's hard-hearted person. They're cynical, cold. Well, maybe that's true of you. If you are a hard-hearted, cold, cynical person, then taking up a practice like sending and taking would be very valuable for you. It's through sending and taking that you soften that hard-heartedness. You open yourself up to that love and compassion. So that'd be a practice that would be very pertinent for you, particularly at that time. If you are a person who is much more naturally compassionate, then sending and taking wouldn't be necessarily that valuable for you. Maybe there's another practice you should be taking up. 
if you are a proud person, and I'm speaking from experience here, it's excellent to take up a practice where you serve others in a humble capacity. I stress humble because let's say you're a computer programmer or whatever, and you decide you want to do some volunteer work, so you go down to the welfare office and you volunteer to train welfare mothers in computer design or something. Well, that's great for the welfare mothers. nothing wrong with that, but it's going to be minimally valuable for you spiritually. Because you are still the one who knows, is in charge, and you're helping out these poor people, and da-da-da-da-da. Much better to go down and offer to clean the toilets. That will be a good spiritual practice for you. I didn't do something quite that severe, but I did something fairly similar. Uh, I used to go to this place called the Center for Healing Arts, where they had all these programs, and I was going to them. And then I started on my path developing my own little set of virtues, and one was humility. And I thought, well, I'll go down, I'll give something back, and i also try this. I was vice president of a major motion picture film company at the time. And I went down there, and the jobs they gave me were setting up the chairs, handing out the brochures as people came, sweeping the floors when they left, you know. It was a wonderful practice. Boy, that ego popped up. You're an executive. What are you doing here sweeping a floor, for God's sake? <laughs> So these practices can be designed right for what your problem is. There once was a woman here, she had a problem with impatience. And this manifested a lot when she was driving. So we talked about it, and she came up with it basically. She said, well, what would happen if I obeyed every traffic law to the letter? No more running through yellow lights. If it's 20 miles an hour of speed zone, I go 20, not 21 or 22. No more California stops. You know what California stop is? You slow down at the stop sign and glide through. So you don't have to wait for a teacher to design practices for yourself like this. And the more they can be customized, obviously, the, the more powerful they're going to be. They're designed just for you and just for your little unique quirks of delusion here. Uh, how long should you do these practices? You do them until they become second nature or the obstacle vanishes. By vanish, by the way, I don't mean that it, if you, let's say, are a proud person, prideful thoughts will never arise again. They will arise, but you will no longer be identified with them. You'll notice this as old conditioned behavior, and it won't cause you suffering. So we want to be careful that we don't think we're going to arrive at some saintly state of purity where these things aren't going to arise. But we are going to experience them all ultimately in a completely different light. And then, as I mentioned, uh, you can also even get instructions for very unique practices just for you through dreams. So one of the things you want to do maybe is pay attention to your dreams. And I advise anybody who gets an instruction to do any kind of practice in your dream to do it. At least try it. At least respond to the dream, even if it seems kind of weird and you wonder why you're doing it. As long as, of course, it's not violating love and compassion. Selfless love and compassion is the prime directive that overrides any impulses or whatever you get. You know. Then, finally, as a path progresses, we have all these practices, and maybe we start with a lot, but they themselves start to simplify and become compressed. So, for instance, self-inquiry is a good example. Self-inquiry, actually, you should begin combining it with meditation, and you're concentrating on watching very closely what is arising here, and then you start asking the question, to whom is this occurring? 
After a while, you don't even have to ask the question, to whom is this occurring? It becomes superfluous. You've developed this refinement, this subtlety, where you're just observing, you're just being quiet. You don't even necessarily have to go into some formal space. In fact, if you get really good, it's great to do this in the midst of a violent argument, screaming and yelling and throwing dishes. To whom is this occurring? <laughs> no, you'll be very undistracted because you know all your attention will be in your anger, so you won't be drifting around. So it'll be very powerful practice. It's a hard thing to describe, but you find grace pulls you towards this simplifying of practices. It's just all coming back to the space, the silence, the emptiness. So, finally, there comes a stage when you actually arrive at the stillness, the silence, the emptiness, where the practices themselves become the obstacle. Here's what Tulku Urgen Rinpoche, Tibetan master, says. The ultimate enemy is the concept of the antidote, the conceptual veil. As long as the subtle concept is not eliminated, then the obstruction of dualistic knowledge cannot be cleared up. We think, oh, we've got obstacles, we need an antidote. But that's still in the realm of delusion. From an ultimate point of view, actually, there are no self, there's no obstacles, none of this is true. We're just working with delusion in delusion because we have nothing else to work with as long as we're in delusion. This is what Bayezid, a great Sufi master, said. Thirty years I spent in remembrance of God. When I stopped, I realized my very zikr was my veil. Zikr is a practice of remembrance of God. Saying God's name or la ilaha illallah over and over, and then it becomes second nature. It's like ceaseless prayer in the Christian tradition. Thirty years he did this, and he realized that was the veil. It's a little bit like, uh, as an analogy, when you train a dog to sit. You start off with a lot of effort. You say, sit, maybe you raise your finger, sit, sit, and then first maybe you have to push its behind down so it gets what it's supposed to be doing, you know? And then it's easily distracted in the beginning, you know? <laughs> and it sees a squirrel, it jumps up, right? no, come back, sit. After a while, you don't have to push its behind down anymore. You just have to say, sit, raise your finger, sit. After a while, you just have to raise your finger. And it's an attentive dog. Oh. Sit. And it'll learn to sit for longer and longer periods of time and not be distracted. Squirrels can run around and stuff like that, right? But finally, when it is sitting and then you raise your finger, you're interrupting its sitting. Well, when we come to that place in our path, then we have to even let go of the practice. The practice itself is going to kick us out of that. So then, of course, the big question is, how do I know when I've gotten there? Maybe I'm there already. I can stop doing all this boring meditation and all that. <laughs> Take this advice from Ramana Maharshi. He says, sadhanas, practices in Hindu, in uh, Sanskrit, sadhanas are needed so long as one has not realized. They are for putting an end to obstacles. Finally, there comes a stage when a person feels helpless, notwithstanding the sadhanas. He is unable to pursue the much-cherished sadhanas. It is then that God's power is realized. The self, with a capital S, reveals itself. 
you don't have to worry about this. You will not be able to do any practices. As long as you're able to do practices, then do them. And it's not just not being able to do practices, it's not being able to do anything. So if you say, oh, I just can't practice this anymore. Let's go out and see a movie tonight. No, no, no. It's when you're at the place where you can't go see the movie. You can't practice, you can't go see the movie, you can't do this, you can't do that. There's nothing more for you to do. You cannot do anything more. But it's a big mistake to fool yourself and think you're there prematurely. So, this summarizes my view of practices, what they're used for, how you can at least start to look at them and pick and choose what is right for you. And that's the overview. But now, let's get to Vip's particular question. Quite simple answers. Yes. <laughs> no, it's yes and no. Yes, when you are allowing emotions to self-liberate and doing this kind of practice, and then you start doing inquiry, that is a problem. And in fact, we can make a rule. Never mix practices. Never mix practices. You can take that as a general rule. Now, in one session, you might decide, I'm going to start with some concentration to calm my mind, then I'm going to move into choiceless awareness to have a sense of that spaciousness, and then I'm going to do in that sending and taking, let's say. That's not mixing the practices. You're doing three practices in one meditation session, but you know precisely what you're doing. You're moving from one to the other, and when you're doing the concentration, that's all you're doing. When you're doing the choice awareness, that's all you're doing. When you're doing the sending and taking, that's all you're doing. So this is what I mean by don't mix practice. So the solution is don't do it. <laughs> Stop. But now, it's of course never that simple. <laughs> so let's investigate what happens here because you said an interesting thing now I want you to amplify it. You said feeling gets herded by thought when you start doing this inquiry. What did you mean by that? Uh, well, you know, sometimes you'll guide us. You'll give us a guided meditation in the practitioner's group. And I start off, okay, I've got plenty of material to work with, you know, so I can draw on the last thing or the ongoing thing or whatever. And I can begin to sink into feeling, which is going to be a sensation that seems to be located at first in the body. However, at some point... I guess it's distraction. I'll, I'll start finding uh, commentary arising, which is not feeling, it's thought. And it's all these different uh, aspects of, well, and if only, or, you know, what I should have said, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, that's where the temptation to then drag in the inquiry practice comes, because it's more designed for, you know, dealing with that kind of stuff. So the hurting, yeah, it's like it's kind of like oh, there's all these little thoughts or like little dogs. Oh, I see. Trying to corral them and, yeah. and whatnot. Okay. So the problem is though, you are mixing practices, and now you're getting off into another practice, and you're losing track of what the original practice was. And just for a little point of clarification, when I give these guided meditations, I ask people to remember some incident that they got angry about or had some afflicted emotion arise over jealousy or something like that. And so then we remember that and then we arouse the emotion 
And then we drop the story, we drop the recall, and we just focus on the energy of the emotion, the naked energy, without labeling it good, bad, or anything. So once you start into the inquiry, you've lost that. So it's more uh, skillful, I think, here. First of all, when each of those thoughts starts to arise, to just let them self-liberate and go right back to the emotion. Because what the thoughts are trying to do is pull you away from the emotion. And the thoughts are trying to pull you away from the emotion because, really, we are frightened of our emotions. That's why we create stories. The thoughts are trying to herd the emotions. Do you know what I mean? We're trying to corral them. We're trying to get a handle on them. We're trying to identify them and justify them and then find out how we should respond to them. So I think my, the crux of my question is uh, I seem to have a natural proclivity. You know, I'm a, more of a natural-born Janani. So if that's where my strength lies, so to speak, anyway, if the thoughts are always going to come and try and take over, perhaps I'm better suited to choose that technique and not even spend my time trying to develop that uh, center. That is possible. People have certainly, you know, gone through a path and not done this particular practice, especially in this rigorous, formal way that we are doing it. So I'm not saying it's essential. But this is a pretty fundamental practice in the sense that one of the problems of having a purely Janana approach is we don't get to deal with our emotions. Then even when we arrive at a space of stillness and silence and we have a recognition of our true nature, then some afflicted emotion arises and we're thrown for a loop. We're back in delusion because we're, we immediately don't like that one, right? And then we think, well, gee, I can't be enlightened here. I'm feeling anger. What happened to my enlightenment? We're back in delusion. So to get familiar with your emotions beforehand can be extremely useful because then when anger does arise, you don't experience it as anger arising. It doesn't cause you suffering. It's not something that you uh, want to get rid of. So you're not stuck with those dualistic responses that we normally have. So it's very helpful to do that. And it will also alleviate suffering in the meantime in your life. So it, I think it's very well worthwhile doing this practice. Now, again, this is like sending and taking. It's a practice that normally, although some people might make it really a centerpiece of their path, but normally you would do it formally the way we've been doing it for several months now. And then you've learned how to do it so when you are in an argument with someone and anger or fear arises, immediately the practice kicks in. Do you know what I mean? So instead of running away from that emotion, you focus on it because that emotion is a wisdom energy. It's going to tell you something about the situation. Mm -hmm. See? I'm, I think I'm realizing now exactly what motivated my question was it's, it's an egoic attempt to sidestep the real work that is yeah. before me. It's kind of like I own a clutch car, which I don't know how to drive a clutch car. So I'm saying, I can't I just drive a, a, an automatic transmission, but I don't own that. You know, That's I right. That's very good. Excellent. Oh, I'm going to steal that one from you. One thing we can take that doesn't belong to us are teachings, because they don't belong to anybody. So a good teaching arise, anybody can take it. <laughs> Excellent. And look, don't feel bad. I mean, our point is to see where we're sidestepping, how we're def trying to continue to defend that self. Because ultimately, you see, nobody wants to arrive at this space where the hurricane is gone and there's nothing there. The truth is, we are terrified of it. 
So this is one of the traps of Janana. It's very comforting to have a Janana practice where you're getting all these insights, but then immediately the intellect comes and wraps them up in a concept, you know, and uh, we start having a collection. We put this on the shelf next to that one. And then, oh, yes, I had an insight into impermanence. Oh, yes, I had an insight into anything. So, yes, I you know. And it starts to be dangerous because we start to fool ourselves. So if you're doing the practice with the emotion, however you do it, get back to the emotion. Whatever thoughts are going, let them self-liberate. Everything is distraction but the naked feeling of the emotion in that practice. Is that helpful at all? Yeah, tremendously. And I hope the whole talk was helpful and we can have a little time for some questions about it. Yes? Just one thing that helps me is instead of thinking of the word story, I label it the drama. Very good. That gets me quicker off of it. Drama? Soap operas. <laughs> Most of them are soap operas. You know. Yes. I think one of the things that I tend to get indigestion over is the fact that lots of times I'll find myself reading about these different techniques and the author or whoever you know, is, is describing it and writing about it is saying, this one is the best. This is the one. This is the fastest. This is the one you should use. And so I can get caught up in kind of arguing or either accepting or rejecting, and that gives me an adjustment. Yes. And, uh, I mean, just to know that there's no such thing as the best or the only or the... So even. Why they say that? Well, <laughs> <laughs> they like to debate each other, that's why. You know, in high school, why do we have debating clubs? Uh, no, there are two aspects to this. From an ultimate point of view, there is no such thing as the best. That's a relative statement, and it has to be relative to someone who's deluded. So there is the best for you, but there isn't the best for everybody. From an ultimate point of view, it's all relative. But within a relative perspective, there is um, value in having these arguments because in a relative sense, some practices are better than other practices for a larger number of people. And through this sort of debate and all that, we get to hear other people's experience or other traditions experience, because sometimes it's not presented as an individual's experience, you know, the traditions experience, and we get to understand the practice better, and then we might say, yes, I think I will try that, even though at first it didn't sound very good. So let me just give you an example, because the Tibetans are known for this. They look at other schools of Buddhism as being valid, but they look at theirs as being the best. And particularly this business with emotion. So let's stick with this, and it's a really nice analogy. In their classification, generally recognized in Buddhism, three main uh, divisions. There's Theravadian Buddhism, which means the elders. So it's the Buddhism of the elders. They think it's the pure form that the Buddha taught and so forth. It's quite ascetic. Then there's the Mahayana Buddhism, where there's a lot of stress on compassion and shunyata, emptiness. And then there's the Tantra of the Tibetan Buddhism. So there's these three divisions. Now, what the Tibetans say is, well, when you're dealing with afflicted emotions, it's like these are poison mushrooms. The Theravadians come along and they're going down a path and they see a poison mushroom and they immediately turn and go back the other way. Because, you know, you don't have anything to do with lust, anger, pride, all those things, right? They're all defilements. The Mahayana come along and they have a much more expansive attitude. So they see a poison mushroom. They recognize it's a poison mushroom. So they just walk around and keep going down the path. The tantric practitioners come along and they recognize that the poison in the mushroom could be a medicine. So they know how to pick the uh, mushroom and prepare it and ingest it so that the poison has now become a remedy, a help. So that's their transformation of these negative emotions, right? 
So in this sense, they're saying our way is better. Now, you still can't say ultimately it's better for everybody. There are big traps doing this. A lot of people think they're ingesting this medicine. And what they're doing is either killing themselves or they're just getting high and escaping. <laughs> so for somebody, it might be better to take a very ascetic path, as the Buddha himself did, by the way. But yes, it becomes a trap. If our interest in the debate is to find out who's right so I can be on the right side, it's totally useless for us. If our interest in the debate is humble and saying, well, maybe I'll find out something that will be right for me, then it can be valuable. So I think it's the attitude we bring towards it that makes the difference here, not what's going on outwardly, which is almost always the case. Yes? Um, what I'm wondering is, everything seems to be speeding up now and moving much more quickly. I've been on the path for a long time, and I guess it was mostly devotion, some inquiry, but then uh, all of a sudden there was a crisis that came, and someone walked out of my life, and everything just collapsed, and all of these emotions came up. I wasn't looking for them, but there was uh, loneliness, there was anger, there was uh, self-pity, there was oh, yeah. uh, depression. Everything came up, and uh, there was no choice <laughs> about dealing with them because there they were. So yeah. finally, I just decided that what I was doing wasn't working, so I needed to throw the whole thing out and just to start from scratch and just surrender and give up and quit. So I did and then it's like a door opened, and it's like the source has just been, you know, putting things in my path that have really enabled me to, to get enlightened. But it was this, you know, what some people call the dark night of the soul that really turned things around. And things have really been moving rapidly since then. Well, I'm going to tell you a secret. Okay. The whole path works this way. The way we move from one stage to another, no, there's no time here. I mean, we might be in one stage for 10 years and go through another stage in five minutes. But the way we move is we keep trying, 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 trying the stage. And finally, when we give up, then we move into the next stage because we have surrendered. We've let go. And then the minute we've surrendered, oh, then something starts to happen. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So... Uh, and then the final end of the path, this is just what Ramana Maharshi was talking about. You won't be able to do any practice. You won't be able to do nothing. You won't be able to go anywhere. You'll be out on that limb and there's no coming back. And then you look back and there's God sawing away. <laughs> so this is par for the course. And it's, it's okay to say this because there's a paradox here. You can't make it happen. For some reason, it all came together and you had to quit. I mean, it wasn't like a decision you can just make intellectually. So the whole path works through these paradoxes. You shouldn't be surprised. And sometimes, though, when we get the sense of that, it's not that we can actually surrender. This is, this is, language doesn't help us here. In fact, it, it gets in our way. But it's like we get the knack of it, and we know how to let go. And it becomes easier and easier to do that. And then the path becomes easier and easier. You are just led. So you don't have to worry about what practice am I going to do. Whatever practice you need to do will appear for you, and that's the practice you'll do. Then you won't worry about it. Again, we have to be very careful about this inner guidance, you know, because if you just happen to be led to Hawaii and happen to be led to surfing and, you know, <laughs> drinking beer and smoking dope on the beach, I'd be a little careful of that kind of guidance. So. <laughs> yes. I really appreciate the Tibetan emphasis on um, practices to cultivate bodhicitta or the heart of compassion and that we're doing practices 
in large part to be a well from their point of view to be a benefit to others and i like the practice of dedicating the merit of whatever efforts you put in to other beings and i in doing that more and more it's awakening more of what was is sometimes mysterious to me or you know i can't feel it is this yearning to be of help to others sometimes i can feel that and sometimes i can't but the but the practice of dedicating the merit of a practice helps me get back in touch with that it seems fairly obvious how this developed and this relates to your seeing how you can actually take a practice and how the ego can take the practice and use it to defend itself in the cosmology of the hindus the tibetans and everybody else when you do good deeds you build up merit and the merit buys you a better incarnation now ultimately building up merit buys you uh doesn't buy you enlightenment it buys you the opportunity this is the way they think of it so you know you're getting brownie points right but then people suddenly are practicing are doing good deeds but the reason they're doing good deeds is for self-motivation which again, socially, it's wonderful they're doing good deeds, but spiritually, it's not only neutral, it can be even negative. Do you see what I mean? You're just feeding the ego. So then the Tibetans come up with this idea, well, even when you do these good deeds, you've got to then give away your merits that you've earned. So that's real selflessness now, see what I mean? So not only are you doing the good deeds, but you're also giving away the merit, so you're not accumulating anything in the way of self. So it's an antidote to this tendency to hang on to your merits. We wanted to translate that into psychological terms. It's an antidote to hang on to the pride that people sometimes develop when they do a lot of good deeds. You know what I mean? <laughs> what a good boy am I. Yeah. All right. Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close, and we can continue to talk informally afterwards. And you're welcome to hang out, check out the library. There's some tea available. And until we see you again, we still are.